Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Hey, thank you for joining us here today on AOA. Great to have you along for the conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Appreciate you being here. Coffee cup is full. We're ready to talk agriculture here today on the program coming up here in segment two we're going to look at soybeans soybean exports demand and more mac marshall with the united soybean board is going to join us for a conversation in segment three while i was at the northern gordon soy expo last week at fargo i had a very interesting eye-opening conversation with peter zion zion on global politics and geopolitics author and commentator we're going to listen to that interview coming up in segment three today. Some very interesting things uh, that Peter shared with me. We're going to talk about that and hear about it coming up here after the bottom of the hour. And in segment four, we're going to take a look at news headlines. We're, of course, watching the farm bill and the battle between House Democrats and House Republicans trying to figure things out there. We're also watching the dicamba issues and the USDA released the 2022 Census of Agriculture. We're going to talk about those stories and more coming up in news headlines at the end of the show today. First up, though, we want to get a recap of the Clean Fuels Conference that happened last week in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metro. Joining us to recap what was uh, going on at that conference and to tell us more, Heather Buchter, Communications Director with Clean Fuels Alliance America. Heather, great to have you on AOA with us today. Hope you're doing well. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start, uh, Heather, with just uh, give us a recap and rundown of the conference. I know it was very well attended. I saw a lot of pictures from, from the conference last week, and I'm sure many great conversations surrounding renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, things like that. Can you give us just a, a quick recap to start of the conference? It was really a phenomenal week in Fort Worth last week. You know, the conference brings together decision makers from across the value chain, so feedstock providers, fuel producers, marketers, and end users, and really, like you said, just to make those connections and build the industry. We had more than 800 attendees this year with representation from 20 different countries, so that kind of gives you an idea of where our industry is heading to and the interest surrounding clean fuels. Um, you know, new EPA data, EPA data shows that the clean fuels industry hit record growth in 2023, 4.6 billion gallons consumed. So at the conference, we really heard from the corporate leaders who are implementing biodiesel, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel into their sustainability strategies. We also talked about emerging market opportunities, climate smart ag, and then just, you know, the feedstocks needed to reach all these goals. Um, some of the key takeaways, you know, California has remained the main driver of clean fuels demand in the U.S. Just in the third quarter of 2023, biodiesel and renewable diesel accounted for 60% of all diesel fuel sold in the state using more than 200 million gallons of soybean oil. So we're keeping an eye on other states looking to implement similar policies. And I believe the clean fuel standard actually just passed in New Mexico's legislature yesterday and is awaiting the governor's signature. So state policy will play a role in demand moving forward. And other demand factors are that consumers and investors are just expecting companies to be committed to carbon reduction. And this was backed up by many fleet operators at our conference, not only on road, but also in those emerging clean fuels markets like rail, marine, and aviation. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We heard from executives from PepsiCo. They discussed decarbonization of their 80,000 vehicle fleet, which is possibly the largest in North America. Uh, railroads are bullish on biodiesel. You know, blends of biodiesel and renewable diesel have really just proven to be an attractive combination to meet sustainability goals of the railroads while maintaining performance. So we heard that from both Union Pacific and BNSF Railway. And of course, we had a couple of different panels on sustainable aviation fuel as well. Yeah. Well, and Heather, I, I, I think about this and, and everything you mentioned, I, I think it sounds like the conference really echoed what we're hearing, you know, broadly across the country right now, just the excitement surrounding uh, all the various clean fuels opportunities that are out there in front of us here in 2024 and beyond, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, SAF is really a groundbreaking market for the ag industry. Um, And we've got a head start on decarbonizing the aviation industry. You know, we're the only commercial technology that's currently available. And the goal is to have 3 billion billion gallons of SAF by 2030 with soybean oil and canola oil contributing to about 90% of that. So just to put that into perspective, only 20 million gallons of sustainable aviation fuel is currently being produced. So just a tremendous opportunity for producers of soybeans, corn, and other feedstocks that can really help increase production. And just a lot of work to be done in the next six years, too. So we did hear from panelists um, at our conference from American Airlines and Southwest Airlines um, just about the lofty goals ahead and looking to partner with the ag community to make that happen. Yeah, a lot of lofty goals ahead, but uh, sounds like great conversations happening there at the uh, Clean Fuels Conference last week. And we're talking with Heather Buchter, Communications Director from Clean Fuels Alliance America. Heather, I know as well, uh, coming up here just a couple of weeks, Commodity Classic happening uh, in Houston, Texas. I know you guys are going to be there. You're going to have some education opportunities on hand for farmers uh, during Classic. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we have a great team heading to Houston for Commodity Classic, and we do have a learning center session this year. Um, It's called Coordinating Demand for New Fuels and Opportunities for New Crops. So clean fuels and member companies will be discussing growing demand for biodiesel, renewable diesel, and sustainable aviation fuel, and then just the strategies to meet the industry's feedstock needs. So a great, great session. Um, It's going to be happening on lease day, so easy to remember which is Thursday, February 29th at 3.30 Central Time, and we'll be in room 310 of the George R. Brown Convention Center. So please plan to join us for that learning session. Be engaged with us as we're there. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall, say hello, and we'd be happy to answer any questions too. Yeah, it's going to be a great time again coming up in Houston at Commodity Classic here just a few weeks away. Heather, too, before we wrap up uh, this segment, I know uh, Clean Fuels, you guys uh, have a lot of great information available, including a a podcast that folks can listen to to find out more about all the different opportunities that are out there surrounding clean fuels. Can you give us a, a plug for that real quick? You bet. You know, so many people said that there was just so much great content generated from our conference and they wanted to continue the conversation. And this podcast is a great way to do that. And um, we just launched the Better Cleaner Now podcast um, in January. So brand new, a lot of great discussions happening and it's available wherever you get your podcast. So uh, we release new episodes every Wednesday morning. And, you know, this has really been a, a passion project of mine because it really gives the staff here at Clean Fuels who are experts in their field 
uh, the opportunity just to sit down and have an authentic conversation about all aspects of the industry with guests. And um, we really just want our listeners to feel like they're eavesdropping on a really good conversation and learn a thing or two while they're at it, too. So we're going to take you under the hood of the car and really hit all aspects of the industry. It's just a nice way to take a deep dive into some of these topics. And, you know, we are always looking for, for more guests. And if you have questions and, you know, topic ideas, shoot me an email and we'll, we'll be sure to get that on the show, too. Fantastic. I know folks can get more information, cleanfuels.org, right, Heather? That's right. That's our website. Cleanfuels.org. Heather Buchter, Communications Director with Clean Fuels Alliance America. Heather, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Really appreciate the time. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk soybeans with Mac Marshall from the United Soybean Board. You join us next on AOA. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. On February's episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we discuss the relationship between the corn and poultry and egg industries with John Del Monte from NCGA, along with Mary Alice Kane and Jenna Gress from the USA Poultry Egg Export Council, known as USAPEAK. We are a trade association. We represent the U.S. poultry and egg industry who exports, and we represent all sectors. Anyone who's touched by exports and is involved in the industry can be a member of USAPEAK. From corn's perspective, uh, obviously the poultry industry is a you know is a big customer. So as Mary Alice and Jenna both spoke to, you know, exports are obviously an area that they specialize in. Exports account for 28 cents a bushel to the value of corn. So corn has a very vested interest in what poultry exports are doing. Join us the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button, or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Times of transition, whether from a sad event or a joyful one, can leave us feeling adrift. Social connections are an important part of a healthy life. Being isolated and lonely can be harmful to your health. It can lead to high blood pressure, a greater risk of heart disease, and early onset dementia. So it's important to build and maintain connections to people, not just in your family, but others whose relationships bring meaning to your life trying a new hobby, volunteering, exercising, even using your phone or other device to stay in touch with others. All these can be great ways to keep up your social connections and your physical and mental well-being. Visit connecttoeffect.org to see if you're at risk of social isolation and find ways to get connected. 
presented by AARP Foundation with support from United Healthcare. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Welcome back to AOA. Let's talk soybeans right now. Joining us, he is the Vice President of Market Intelligence for the United Soybean Board and the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Mac Marshall joins us here on AOA. Mac, it's great to have you back on the show, my friend. Hope you're doing well. Hey, doing great, Jesse. Thanks for having me back, man. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice as well. Good to talk with you as uh, we are looking at soybeans here, beginning part of the year, and really just examining this soybean market as a whole. I know, you know, prices, uh, the markets themselves have come back down, but, mm-hmm. you know, we look at soybeans in general here. I think about the latest WASDI reports that we've just had, you know, still fairly tight balance sheet on the U.S. side, things like that. I guess just let's start this off. Give me your thousand foot view of where the soy complex and the soybean markets kind of stand right now here in the early part of 2024 back. Yeah. And, you know, I think just as is always the case in commodity markets, we can focus on the here and now and, you know, the the drivers that are really underpinning it in the moment. But I think it's also important to, you know, zoom back out and have that 30,000, you know, foot view as well. So, you know, I'd say where we are uh, in the moment, you know, you've had soybeans touch a three-year low uh, for a confluence of factors. Um, you know, we had, you know, we had some beans added to the balance sheet in terms of expected carryout for this year. Not that that's the huge thing weighing on the market, really. It's a, a large Brazilian crop, um, not as big as it was once expected. A rebound in Argentina. Um, you've got questions about demand coming out of China as, you know, it's got another year of population decline. Um, you've got cheap Brazilian beans on the market. So there's a lot of things coming together that I think are, are creating an overall bearish sentiment around beans in the moment, uh, certainly as we're heading towards planting season. But I think it's also really critical to, you know, look beyond uh, where we are now and think, uh, you know, really think holistically about why soybeans are needed, why there's a, a very robust global marketplace. And uh, the developments that are happening here domestically, you know, I've been on before and I've talked about this crush capacity expansion that's coming online mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the implications coming out of that, certainly having more meal. And I'd say that's one real bright spot that we've got for this season that I think also sets up well for the future is that we've got meal exports running over 10% ahead of last year's record pace. Um, and this is what's going to need to happen moving forward as we're producing more meal, uh, we want to be able to get that high quality product into the hands of customers, both domestically and internationally for advancing uh, protein availability on a global basis. And yeah. that that need is there as well Definitely. as energy transition, but we can get back to that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That need is there. Well, and, and to your point here, just in the last segment, we talked uh, with uh, Heather Buchter from Clean Fuels Alliance America and their conference last week, they talked a lot about SAF, biodiesel, things like that. So, you know, looking at crush demand and more of these crush plants coming online, plus this added potential of, uh, you know, soybeans working their way into uses for, you know, sustainable aviation fuel, et cetera. There's, even though it, even though things are kind of shifting a little bit, I think here, Mac, in terms of how we use our soybeans, there's a lot of opportunity out there, right? 
And, and there always has been. That's always been the nature of, of soybeans is that you have the versatility around it. I mean, I was watching It's a Wonderful Life over Christmas. And uh, at one point, uh, my mom called me back because I left the room. She's like, hey, Mac, there's a they said something about soybeans. And, you know, one of the characters in that movie, which came out, I think, in 1941, is talking about, you know, soy uh soy applications in plastics. And that's where we are now. And I think that's what's what's really exciting to your point about how the, you know, there are shifts in demand, you know, and that's, I think another fascinating thing about soy and how we think about the portfolio of investments to advance uh, the soy industry uh, here in the United States, the work of our farmers on the checkoff is it's looking at things that are, you know, demand channels and opportunities. I think that are you know, structurally always there and solid. And that's certainly what we have on the protein side and, you know, the meal side that we we're just talking through as far as exports, as well as advancing domestic animal agriculture. But you also have to think about, um, you know, where non-traditional uses could be going and what the opportunities there are uh, as well. And uh, I was actually at that Clean Fuels conference last week. And anytime, anytime I'm, uh, you know, talking in the bio biofuel sphere, I always like mm -hmm. to impart a little bit of a history lesson here, which is, you know, if we go back 30 years, you know, to the to the 90s, when soybean oil was a little bit more of an afterthought, it took forward thinking farmers, um, you know, I think a lot of courage and panache to come together and say, you know, there might be an opportunity here for using soybean oil as uh, as a fuel feedstock. And that's how the biodiesel industry really started getting its its first steps before eventually becoming commercially viable and really creating the stage for this renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel surge that's going on now. So that was a pivot uh, back then, and it, it's taken a long time. But over that over that time, it's brought a lot of value, I think, back to um, not just the soybean industry, but I'd say to you know the economy at large. We have to have a more you know, diverse and resilient energy ecosystem, which is why the work of, of uh, entities like clean fuels and, um, you know, is, is so important. Um, you know, it's providing another channel as well for, um, you know, for, for a, a farm product and Very any true. new creation of markets or advancement of existing markets for farmers. That's something we're always excited about. It's just that the, the new opportunities that, that come about, you know, sometimes they're always going to be built on the previous wave of innovations, but sometimes you don't necessarily know where that next uh, next angle is going to come from. But with soy, uh, it's incredibly versatile. So, you know, the sky's really the limit. Definitely. Definitely. We're talking with Mac Marshall from the United Soybean Board and Mac, you know, in, in terms of where these markets are at right now, a lot of these new exciting things that are coming online. I know a lot of times I think folks uh, in U.S. agriculture get hung up on, you know, where's China? Is China buying U.S. soybeans, et cetera? Well, China's largely been moving to South America and taking advantage of that big Brazilian crop. And so I, I think, you know, in terms of U.S. exports to China, running a little bit lower than some people would want to see. But I know China's still a player for U.S. beans. But in your eyes, beyond the China aspect, what are some other countries that we need to watch here in the year ahead that could maybe pick up some slack on, on soybean exports from the U.S.? It's it's a great question. I think also goes you know back to that point you'd made about how we think about shifts in consumption, shifts in demand, and what that means for, you know, effectively what we're going to be supplying to the world. You know, first, first of all, you know, with the crush expansion, that means that, you know, fundamentally, 
you know, our volume of exports, you know, will still be, I think, predominantly oriented towards export of whole beans, but meal is taking on a greater share of importance of our total export volume and by extension, the value of our exports. So when we think about meal markets, those are going to be a little bit different from some of the whole bean markets. These are, uh, you know, generally smaller markets across Latin America and parts of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, that, that might not have the full downstream crushing industry and facilities to support large import of whole beans. So we have to think differently about um, about those markets. You know, there are markets that have historically been whole bean markets for us as well that also import meal, but it's predominantly historically been sourced from places like Argentina. Well, that's an opportunity, you know, I'd say for us in the U.S. to you know, expand presence into those markets. Indonesia certainly comes to mind there. We, we export over two, uh, 2 million tons of whole beans there, but not a lot of meal where they import, you know, over 5 million tons of meal from South America. You know, that's an opportunity for producers over there to, you know, experience the value of, uh, of U.S. soy meal. Um, so that, you know, I'd say that's one piece, just structurally thinking differently about um, the meal markets that are going to be important, where you've got centers of animal production, you know, both on land and in aquaculture, certainly throughout Latin America, aquaculture is continuing to grow. We've got a lot of, you know, smaller markets that aggregate into, you know, you know, collectively large meal markets, um, you know, but uh, we also have to, you know, continue to look at, you know, what, again, what are the further downstream markets that might not be commercially relevant today, but are going to matter in the future. Um, I was in Nigeria earlier this year. Now, we don't export um, you know, hardly any soy products to Nigeria right now, but when you consider you know, what the, uh, the population trajectory is there, as well as the fact that it's an incredibly young country and that the consumer base is going to be growing substantially in the years to come, and with increased economic performance, um, you know, likely some dietary shift and the need for uh, you know, more animal protein. Well, what does that need? That needs more and more soy protein to, uh, to help support it. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of lens, uh, you know, really long-term that we're looking through as we evaluate, you know, future investments in, um, in how to advance the, the soy industry. Good thoughts, Mac. We're up against the clock real quick. USDA outlook forum here later this week. Any, inkling going into that uh, outlook form what usda could say for soybean acreage in 2024 it's going to be very interesting i mean I'm, I'm always intrigued by what comes out in february at the outlook forum with the caveat that you know it changes by the time we get to the survey-based reporting and the planning yep. and the planning's report at the end of march um you know certainly you know the price environment you know weighing on beans but last year we didn't i don't think we planted a enough there's a lot of preference for corn so you know we will see reversal this year but um you know we'll have to see a lot of factors yeah we'll have to see mac marshall united soybean board mac thanks for joining us appreciate it thanks jesse have a good day we'll be back with more on aoa right after this On February's episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we discuss the relationship between the corn and poultry and egg industries with John Del Monte from NCGA, along with Mary Alice Kane and Jenna Gress from the USA Poultry Egg Export Council, known as USAPEAK. We are a trade association. We represent the U.S. poultry and egg industry who exports, and we represent all sectors. Anyone who's touched by exports and is involved in the industry can be a member of USAPEAK. 
from corn's perspective, uh, obviously the poultry industry is a, you know, is a big customer. So as Mary Alice and Jenna both spoke to, you know, exports are obviously an area that they specialize in. Exports account for 28 cents a bushel to the value of corn. So corn has a very vested interest in what poultry exports are doing. Join us the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. You're listening to AOA. Here is a check of what's happening in the markets. Jesse Allen with you here as we take a look at where things stand on this Wednesday. Pressure in grains and oil seeds led by the wheat complex. All three classes under pressure here. March Kansas City wheat, in fact, setting a new contract low that also corresponds to a new 2024 low in milling wheat in France. Once again, we saw a Wednesday morning report from the International Grains Council that showed a weekly drop in wheat prices from Argentina, Australia, Canada, Europe, Russia, and Ukraine, with the latter two owning the lowest prices. And really, bottom line is Russia continues to dominate world wheat exports, the world's second lowest wheat prices. It also has been a bearish surprise for wheat lately. How well Ukraine has taken control of the western half of the Black Sea and is able to export grain. So that's keeping... All three wheat classes fairly depressed here for price action, and that is spilling into corded soybeans here on Wednesday with a lack of a fresh story to really drive the trade. Weather in South America remains mostly neutral to bearish here this week with heavier rains expected to move in this weekend to Brazil. We also have USDA's Ag Outlook Forum coming up here on Thursday and Friday. That could be a news item here in the trade as we wait to see what USDA says for projected uh, corn and soybean acreage and yields and more coming up here in the 2024 growing season. That could definitely have an impact on things. But overall, commodity deflation has just uh, been the name of the game here across much of the trade and it's really been kind of the mantra during times of high interest rates when the thinking is that such will be bringing down inflation in the future. We get more economic data out later this week as well. We'll get the producer price index thrown in there after we saw that CPI data hotter than expected on Tuesday. Meantime, in livestock, hogs are starting with some decent strength after cash trade was higher on Tuesday, while live and feeder cattle futures are down moderately. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargard disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward. Pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Great vision doesn't require great sight. Innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Make your impact today. Donate now at fightingblindness.org. A public service message from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Well, right now, I want to take a minute, go back to my time last week in Fargo, North Dakota at the Northern Corded Soy Expo. I had a chance to sit down with 
Peter Zion, geopolitical strategist and commentator. He was one of the keynote speakers during the Northern Corn and Soy Expo and a busy guy, a lot of traveling Peter does, but happy to get a few minutes with him to talk about geopolitics and their impact on agriculture. Here is that interview on AOA. Peter, it's good to see you and uh, great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be back in Fargo. Let's talk a broad range of issues, obviously, when it comes to uh, geopolitics around the world and more that are uh, hampering things. And (laughs) that's the best way I could put it. How much time do we have? Yeah, we we have a lot. Uh, Between the Middle East, between things in China, et cetera, et cetera. You you talk a lot about this stuff. I mean, 1,000-foot view... What are some of the things you're telling folks here at attendance today? What's what's the big thing that we really need to be concerned with here in the short term? We're we're well past the point of no return when it comes to deglobalization. Uh, population structures around the world have degraded to the point that most countries couldn't recover to where they were 10, 20, 30 years ago, even if um, everyone just sat down and had four kids. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it, we're 50 years on into this process now. There aren't enough young people to regenerate populations in most places, with China by far being at the top of that list. So we're not just looking at the collapse of the Chinese system in the next 10 years now. We're now looking at the dissolution of the, the Han ethnicity by the end of this century. And, you know, it's one thing to kind of say that as a breezy statement, and Mm -hmm. then another one to have that conversation with folks in the agriculture sector who see China as their ticket for any number of reasons. Well, that's going to go to zero, and it's probably going to go to zero in the next five to six years. So we need to start thinking about not just different markets, but a fundamentally different structure uh, for how everything in the sector works. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, there are a number of countries where this is not true. Places in Southeast Asia look great. The Mexicans, of course, are our number one trading partners in any n- number of, of sectors of which agriculture is only one. Uh, but the bottom line is this globalized reach system that we've become used to sure. requires a population structure that no longer exists. And so this was always going to be the decade when it broke. And we need to look at a more regional approach to how we trade. And that means we need to look at a more regional approach to how we grow. Well, and I, I think about, uh, you mentioned the regional approach. I feel like we've already seen, a, I call it the shuffling of the deck chair, so to speak. We've mm-hmm. already seen some of that happening here in the last 10 years with, with, you know, in case China going to South America more, things like that. But even, you know, the U.S. hasn't had a new trade agreement in 10 years. No, I mean, not, well, like, is it, or technically, we, we've had several under yeah. Trump that were updated. And overall, yeah. those were pretty good. But we're not going to have another one in the next decade unless yeah. it's going to be really very modest, if anything. Mm-hmm. But to your point, some of that those deck chairs have already kind of started to mm-hmm. shuffle to some degree, right? Well, this, to use the example that you brought up with the Chinese going to Brazil, uh, the, the Chinese made the decision about seven years ago that they would never buy another anything from the United States ever again unless they had absolutely no other choice. Mm-hmm. And since they print currency like mad, they are able to generate economic activity in places that normally wouldn't happen. And so as long as you can throw a bottomless supply of investment capital at Brazil, Brazil can produce. Uh, What I'm suggesting is, for a number of reasons, political, geopolitical, demographic, is that that strategy on a global basis isn't going to work very well much longer. And when that goes, it takes Brazil with it. So, we, yes, we've seen a lot of rearrangement, but it's nothing compared to what's coming <laughs> soon. Uh, pretty much, if there is an acre 
on the planet that has been brought into production since 1945. Okay. Uh, these are territories that require huge amounts of industrial level inputs because in the world before 1945, most of agriculture wasn't industrialized and it's only in the globalized system that these technologies were able to push into these other areas. You're talking here about 60% of the land that's under till. That doesn't work in a post-globalized system. So it's not so much that it's the, the chairs being moved around. It's like the ship itself is going down fast. <laughs> okay. And it, unless you're in one of those zones that either has better land quality from a pre-1945 point of view or uh, has access to the input streams that's necessary to maintain output, you're just going to be out of the game. Now, luckily for the American Midwest, we're in both of those categories. Mm -hmm. So we are probably not going to see any significant challenge to our ability to, ability to produce uh, which means that most of the competition goes away. But the road from here to there, wow, roller coaster. Definitely, definitely. Well, and you throw on top of it, too, wars. We've had the Russian-Ukraine oh, yeah, conflict. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then a lot of the, uh, the tensions rising in the Middle East again. I know that's been a hot topic, and that's disrupted a lot of global shipping, et cetera, et cetera. So I know that's it. You know, that throws a monkey wrench into things as well, doesn't it? We have been very fortunate these last two years that the situation with agriculture and shipping in general has not been a lot worse. Russia is one of the major producers of fertilizers of all types. Russia is the number one wheat exporter. Ukraine's the number five wheat exporter. They're fourth and fifth, uh, respectively, for corn and soy. <laughs> and most of this stuff goes through the, uh, the Red Sea in one way or another. So the fact that we have all this vulnerability... Uh, and, and a shooting war, and we still haven't seen a meaningful disruption to the shipments, that is not a minor miracle. Mm -hmm. And we should not count on this persisting. Uh, we're lucky it hasn't broken already. The break is coming. I know, too. Uh, this is a year where how many elections do we have around the world? All of them. All of yeah. them. It's like the most in, in, a, in history, I mm -hmm. believe. And so that, that in itself, with so many people going to the polls to vote, that in itself could change, um, could change policy, things like that nature. I know that's another thing that I think is in front of, uh, in front of agriculture and really in front of the world right now. Well, it's going to be different based on where you are. And some of these elections mean nothing, uh, especially in places like Russia. Um, and others are... We know exactly how they're going to turn out. So yeah. like India, for example, Modi's party, the BJP, is just going to be dominant for a third cycle now. Yep. Um, here at home, though, from, a, from an international economic point of view, I don't mean to suggest that there's nothing to talk about for American elections. There's a lot. But from an international economic point of view, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the two most similar presidents we have ever had. They're starkly populist. They're starkly protectionist. They're starkly anti-Chinese. And... It doesn't matter at all which one wins because we're going to get a system that is anti-trade. It's not interested in holding up the ceiling for international trade, is not interested in globalization. And while there are a number of people in the United States, uh, especially in the manufacturing space, who see this as it's fantastic. Obviously, for ag, where one out of every three calories we produce is exported, that's a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, over the midterm, as the agricultural produ production system on a global basis breaks down, this is all going to work out great for the American farmer because most of the competition is going to go away and the terms will be much, much, much better. Uh, but 
it really matters the order in which things break down. Sure. So, like, if Brazil breaks before China, then we have a shortage of everything. If China breaks before Brazil, then we have a glut of everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that countries are not signing up to a schedule for their dissolution. Sure. You're going to have a great keynote here this afternoon, talking to folks and sharing, I'm sure, a lot of these same thoughts uh, with farmers and ranchers in attendance. For folks who are listening in, though, you know, we're on the cusp here of a, a brand new year, looking ahead. I mean, especially for farmers and ranchers and those involved in agriculture, what do you really want to reiterate to them and, and drive home to them that they need to keep in mind as they look at the global picture of everything? You need to have a really sharp look and be very brutally honest with yourself about what enables the markets that you care about to function. So I think uh, the best example, and I'm I'm from Iowa here, so I can say this. I'm from Iowa as well. Corn today does not work unless there's a giant global animal fodder market and ethanol. You break down global trade, the animal fodder market goes away because people aren't going to be able to afford animal protein. And there was never a national security and economic interest for ethanol. It's a subsidy program. Mm -hmm. And so if you break down trade, drive up the cost of food to the stratosphere, that program goes away. There's no reason for it to be in existence except for for rural support. So the, the dynamism, the rate of change is going to be so much more for the remainder of this decade than it's been for the last 20 years. And I don't think people in the sector really understand the degree of the shock that's coming. Again, we will all end up in a better place after this is done. But predicting the path uh, is difficult. And that means you need to focus on what everyone got into agriculture for in the first place, and that's to feed people, not to put fuel in cars. Uh, And so you have to look at what programs and what countries you're dependent upon and why so that you can chart your way forward. Peter, very insightful stuff. I know folks can find your commentaries online, YouTube as well. What's the best way for folks to find you, Peter? Uh, if you go to zion.com or slash newsletter, so Z-E-I-H-A-N.com slash newsletter, that's the fastest way to get everything that I put out. Fantastic. Peter Zion, appreciate a few moments of your time here in Fargo today. Thanks for joining us. We'll have to have a conversation again soon. Absolutely. I must say, definitely a thought-provoking and a little bit of an eye-opening conversation I had there with Peter Zion last week while I was at the Northern Corn and Soy Expo in Fargo. Uh, Really interesting stuff. And again, you can learn more online and uh, check out his commentaries. Just go to zion.com slash newsletter, as Peter said, and you can check things out there. Again, Peter Zion uh, on geopolitics. Uh, You can see him on YouTube and much more. Uh, Some very interesting things to think about. That is for sure. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we're going to take a look at news headlines before we run out of time on the program today, including the USDA releasing the 2022 Census of Agriculture results on Tuesday. We're going to recap those. We're also going to talk about the potential of this farm bill and a bit of a line being drawn in the sand between House Democrats and House Republicans, and also some more updates on the dicamba issue. That and more coming up after the break. We'll be back here on AOA right after this. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Just a little heads up before something bad happens. 
Move your coffee cup away from your computer. Oh, no, 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 no. So you can have more control. Stop. You're texting your boss by mistake. Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take a one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Warning, the cap is loose on that catch-up. Don't wait. You have the power to change the outcome. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just gotta hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. <laughs> no, you hold my hand. Here we go. <laughs> Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey. <laughs> We're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Might have to start a band. <laughs> I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. <laughs> Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted car. 
When news happens in agriculture or when the markets are moving, we've got you covered as your trusted voice in agriculture. The team at the American Ag Network has the knowledge and experience to keep you informed on the issues impacting farmers and ranchers. We've got you covered on air, online, and on demand. Find the American Ag Network on your favorite social media platforms and also follow the American Ag Today podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are the American Ag Network. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Get the latest bonus interviews, exclusive content, and more with the American Ag Today podcast. Just search for American Ag Today and give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, USDA on Tuesday released the 2022 Census of Agriculture. USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service announced the results and the information collected directly from producers shows a continued decline in the total number of U.S. farms. However, the data also shows a rise in the number of new and beginning farmers and young producers. Now, new and beginning farmers are defined as those operating 10 or fewer years on any farm, and young producers are those under the age of 35. Now, NASA Administrator Hubert Hamer says, quote, Overall, though there are always changes across U.S. agriculture, the data remains largely consistent with the previous ag census, end quote. Now, the data shows there were 1.9 million farms and ranches down 7% from 2017 with an average size of 463 acres, which was up 5% from the last census. Family-owned and operated farms accounted for 95% of all U.S. farms and operated 84% of land in farms. You can find the complete data set online. Just go to nas.usda.gov forward slash ag census. Again, that is nas.usda.gov forward slash ag census. Well, reaction from folks throughout agriculture to the latest USDA Census of Agriculture numbers. American Farm Bureau Federation Chief Economist Roger Cryan says the census offers a wealth of data across all of agriculture. It tells us everything about farming and ranching in the U.S. It tells us about where the farms are county by county. It tells us about the detail on the costs and inputs used by farms of a particular type. They have data broken out by commodity type. There's a lot of detail on farming practices, on conservation practices, marketing practices, just endless detail. And again, the census shows there are fewer farmers and ranchers in business in 2022 compared to the previous census conducted in 2017. We've got 141,000 fewer farms than we did five years ago, 20 million fewer acres farmed than we had five years ago. As the world rolls forward, it's really important to have enough land to produce the ever-growing needs of the world. That's one of the reasons why Farm Bureau is so supportive of conservation programs that focus on working land. And it's one of the reasons why the Farm Bill itself is so important to help farmers keep getting through the tough years so that they can keep producing in the long run. And Cryan says the data is useful across the entire industry and beyond. There's just so much use for this data for everybody who buys and sells from farmers, for farmers themselves, for everybody who serves farmers like we do, for all the government agencies, you name it. This is an incredibly rich source of data 
notes. And I know that when you see that kind of detail, you wonder how confidential is the information given over by the farmers. That information is very confidential. If you're worried about the confidentiality of your data, just ask folks at your state ag statistics office, and they'll tell you chapter and verse from memory about statute that protects the farmers when they're offered up for statistical collection. Again, you can learn more at fb.org or also go to nas.usda.gov forward slash ag census. While there's precedent for the EPA to allow farmers to use existing dicamba stocks after a federal court vacated the registration of dicamba products, American Farm Bureau's John Walt Boatwright says an earlier EPA existing stocks order gives AFBF hope the agency will again greenlight such use of dicamba on soybeans and cotton. Back in a, a court also handed down uh, a vacature of certain dicamba products and EPA released uh, an existing stocks order within, I believe, uh, five or six days. Now, AFBF President Zippy Duvall and American Soybean Association officials wrote EPA recently urging it to issue an existing dicamba stocks order for the upcoming planting season. That after a federal court in Arizona vacated registration of three dicamba products critical in fighting resistant weeds. Boatwright added, It's critical for our farmers and ranchers around the country who, who utilize this and expected made purchasing decisions and business decisions based on the fact that they would have dicamba ready to go. And spent millions of dollars, some of it borrowed on dicamba and resistant seeds. That's the real problem here is that folks have already made business decisions and and now potentially uh, to be able to not use that product is is going to be a, a major, major issue. Now, the court vacated the registrations for Extended Max, Ingenia, and Tavium, ruling the EPA failed to offer a required public notice and comment period before issuing the 2020 registrations. Well, House Ag Democrats are doubling down on their line in the sand against repurposing climate and SNAP funds for farm programs. House Ag Top Democrat David Scott, in an op-ed first published by AgriPulse, writes that Republicans continue to push objectionable offsets but maybe Scott writes, reading our views in black and white in the press will help them understand no means no. Now, Scott made the same case last June at House Ag hearing. We stand united against any efforts to take food away from children, families, or any vulnerable American in this farm bill or any legislation. Scott now argues that rating programs backed by conservation, green energy, and nutrition interests does not achieve a bipartisan farm bill, but fractures the urban-rural coalition needed to pass one. And that has farm bill advocates concerned. American Farm Bureau's Ryan Yates. I think you're seeing, um, you know, lines in the sand that are similar lines are being are being drawn in the Senate. Um, and I think both sides are saying, you know, here's here's what we're willing to do and here's what we're willing to give up. This is part of a process. And Yates also added... And until those sides and those those issues can be resolved, it will further delay uh, action on a farm bill, unfortunately. And already delayed by other legislative fights in an election year calendar, however, faced with a fixed farm bill budget, though a record sum, both sides are still holding fast to their positions to either repurpose savings or somehow find new funds outside the farm bill. One other note here on the program today before we wrap it up. Food prices increased in January. Grocery prices increased slightly last month, according to the latest Consumer Price Index out on Tuesday. 
The CPI for all urban consumers increased 0.3% in January on a seasonally adjusted basis after rising 0.2% in December. Over the last 12 months, the all items index increased 3.1%. The food index rose 0.4% in January, and the food at home index also increased 0.4% over the month. Four of the six major grocery store food groups indexes increased over the month as well. The food away from home index rose 0.5% in January. The index for full service meals, that rose 0.4%, and the index for limited service meals increased 0.6% over the month. Also, the food at home index rose 1.2% over the last 12 months, while the index for food away from home, that rose 5.1% over the last year. And with that, we are out of time here on the program today. Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk markets with Mike Zuzalo. We'll also have a conversation with Tillman White from the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. And we'll hear that recent convo I had with Dave Hightower from the Hightower Report. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. I'm Jesse Allen. We'll talk to you tomorrow right here on AOA. On February's episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we discussed the relationship between the corn and poultry and egg industries with John Del Monte from NCGA, along with Mary Alice Kane and Jenna Gress from the USA Poultry Egg Export Council, known as USAPEAK. We are a trade association. We represent the U.S. poultry and egg industry who exports, and we represent all sectors. Anyone who's touched by exports and is involved in the industry can be a member of USAPEAK. From corn's perspective, uh, obviously the poultry industry is a uh, you know, as a big customer. So as Mary Alice and Jenna both spoke to, you know, exports are obviously an area that they specialize in. Exports account for 28 cents a bushel to the value of corn. So corn has a very vested interest in what poultry exports are doing. Join us the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Now, we tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday. But sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments. And ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Give to the V Foundation. Right now, one out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. 100% of your donation goes directly to game-changing research. 100%. Donate at v.org. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory. Don't give up. Don't ever give up.